Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. Welcome back. How was your trip to California? It was great. And I just want to say for any of our runners who are struggling in the humidity, you will feel the difference when the humidity goes away. It felt so good to run. You know, California is certainly hot, but the humidity was gone. There was very little humidity for most of my trip there. And it felt so good to run in not humid weather. So I'm just reassuring all of our runners who are struggling through uh, and our listeners who are struggling through the, the, the rest of the summer humidity that um, once you take yourself out of that, um, that, that environment, uh, you will feel your fitness. So it felt so great to run. It was so nice to change up uh, where I run. You know, got to run in a lot of different locations while in California. I was in both LA and San Diego. So ran along the beach and the Santa Monica Pier in LA. Um, ran in San Diego, did a race I'll talk about in a second, but we also, the, the real highlight of, of our trip was um, Paul, I was there with, um, with Paul, we went to uh, run with the Skid Row Running Club on Thursday morning, the Skid Row Running Club runs Mondays and Thursdays at 5.45 a.m., and as listeners may remember, um, we've had two, uh, two episodes related to Skid, Skid Row Marathon, which is a really great documentary, um, we interviewed uh, Miguel or Angel, um, one of the Skid Row Marathon runners, and then we interviewed uh, Judge Craig Mitchell. And um, you know, we had told uh, Judge Mitchell that we really hoped one day we'd be able to, to to run with the group. And as Paul and I planned our trip, we said we, we've got we've got to do that. So I had sent an email to Craig to Judge Mitchell. Um, I guess maybe the week before we went and he wrote such a nice email back saying how he was looking forward to seeing us. Um, uh, uh, Gabby, the um, producer, Paul had reached out to Gabby to let her know that we were going to be there because he had been in uh, touch with her earlier. Um, and uh, she was uh, filming in San Francisco, but gave us all of the details that we needed. And 5.45 a.m. on Monday morning, we showed up, or was it Monday or Thursday? I'm sorry, Thursday. It was Thursday when we first got there. 5.45 Thursday morning, we pulled up and parked along Skid Row and, uh, in the dark and got out and made our way to uh, the front of the Midnight Mission. Uh, and saw one person that looked like they might be a runner standing, weren't quite sure really what to do with ourselves or what we were looking for. And down the street kind of is like a, this, this like vision of just like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it was, you know, coming through the, the with the sunrise um, behind him was Judge Mitchell kind of walking toward the corner of the street as one of the first people there. And he warmly greeted us. It was so wonderful to meet him in person. He is just um, as, as, as amazing. And as, as, um, you know, I really, I said after like, he's really one of my heroes and I don't use that term lightly, but he is such, his heart is so pure. He is so genuine. Um, and he was one of the first there. And as the next, we didn't realize they don't really leave until about six. We thought everyone left at 545. It was really me to 545, leave at six. And in those 15 minutes, as the sun was rising, um, it was really surreal. I wish I could have videoed it from all different directions every street, people started converging on that corner and you'd see them running from wherever they were coming. And it was just, as the sun was rising, more and more people were converging on the corner. We thought, are we gonna be the only people here? It was us, one other runner from the Midnight Mission who told us he had just started running with um, with the group uh, just uh, in April. So just for a few months. And he was in a, a resident of the mission. It was, it was the judge, it was him and it was us. And I thought we're gonna be the only ones here, but within 15 minutes, these uh, about, I'd say 30, maybe 30 to 40, maybe about 30 runners converged on this corner. 
And it was like a family reunion and everyone greeted everyone greets each other with fist bumps and really warm welcomes and everyone knows each other's names and their stories. And, um, uh, and um, off we went at 6am, the judge leads the group off and they do about five miles. They stop after two miles in a park to for announcements and Judge Mitchell introduced us as long as well as long, along with another kind of first time runner who had come to run with the group, introduced everybody, uh, did announcements. They are taking 51 runners uh, to India to run a marathon this, that's this year. So what was really remarkable to me is, I don't know if you remember from the, the documentary that was in, I think filmed in 2015 or 2016, I think they took three, you know, very small number of runners to Africa to run that first marathon. And from that, they've now grown to where they're taking 51 runners this year and um, just meeting everybody, hearing their stories. And, and the runners range from, um, you know, formerly incarcerated uh, individuals to those who are residents of the Midnight Mission, recovering addicts, um, to um, I ran with a sports physician who comes to run with the group. Um, you know, it, it, there are our mentors and there are, um, you know, Judge Mitchell explained to us that there are three levels generally of, of runners who go on the trips, on the international trips. There are um, active recovery and those are covered fully for their trip. Uh, there are um, formerly in recovery who are now kind of have jobs and have, can afford to pay a small portion of the of the fee and then there are mentors that can afford to pay for their their entire way and they pay um so i would just encourage any listeners to um go on to um the website and for skid row marathon we can put the the link in our show notes and make a donation uh, the, the money that um that they're raising is going to such really really meaningful um purpose and it it, it gets used in a very meaningful way and makes a real difference so i would say that was just a real um in 25 or 30 years, however many years I've been running, I would rank that as one of my highlights of my running career. And uh, Judge Mitchell was just, like I said, as warm and as genuine and as, as uh, he, you know, he shows up to every single one of these runs. He knows everybody who's there and knows everybody's story. And he really cares about everybody. And he has created such a legacy that it's just, it was, it was incredible. So that was definitely uh, the highlight of the trip was really great to also run America's finest city half marathon in San Diego. Great race, very well run, highly recommended to anybody who's looking for, who either is on the West Coast or is looking for a destination race. Very well run race. Um, and again, the weather, uh, ours was a little bit humid, but it was 70 degrees. Um, so the, the humidity it was funny. The runners around me when I was starting were all local runners uh, and they were complaining of all the humidity they had over the summer and how humid it was that morning. And I kind of just laughed and I said, you have not been to the East Coast because this is nothing. So it was a great race, really well run, um, beautiful weather. It was just great to run into different place. And um, yeah, I don't know how runners who run on the West Coast ever come here and enjoy running here because it's just so beautiful there and the weather is so great. So really great trip. Uh, like I said, highlight of my running career was running the Skid Row Marathon group. That was really great. I encourage anybody who's in the LA area to go join on Mondays or Thursdays. Uh, the group, very welcoming. That is awesome. And that says a lot that it's a highlight because you've had a lot of highlights. So that's incredible. I'm so glad that you got to meet Judge Mitchell and uh, just get a feel for the group. And for anyone who hasn't listened, um, like you mentioned, we have two episodes dedicated to the Skid Row Running Club. And if you haven't yet seen the film, it's a wonderful documentary available on Amazon and uh, just just 
a real feel-good documentary that shares the story of the Skid Row Running Club. It's called Skid Row Marathon. So thank you for sharing that. I feel like I was there with you. I'm so happy you got to do that. And what a what a treat. So um, just fantastic. And uh, for anyone listening that has any connections to the Boston Marathon beyond what we have, we did reach out to the BAA to ask if they would be interested in connecting to the, the um Skid Row Running Club because they do have a charity arm and they mentioned the charities need to be connected to Boston and Massachusetts, but maybe there's some chance that they too could be included one day in the BAA's charity list. Because or New York be City. Wonderful. New York City yeah. also. They're, they're also really, um, Judge Mitchell mentioned they would really like to get bibs for New York City. So anyone who's got connections to New York City Marathon and might um, be able to give give uh, the, the running club or us some guidance to pass along. Um, they would really love to get some of their runners into Boston or New York. Absolutely. So our guest today, uh, we're so excited, is Dr. Stacy Sims. And for those who do not know who Dr. Stacy Sims is, she literally coined the phrase, women are not small men, and is the author of the bestseller book, Roar. And uh, after writing Roar, there was one chapter dedicated to menopause, and a lot of women mentioned to her that there was really a need for a book on athletes and menopause, and Stacy did just that. She wrote the book with Celine Yeager, who is um, the host of the Hit Play Not Pause podcast, which is an amazing podcast if you haven't checked that out as well. And we were delighted to welcome Dr. Stacy Sims on our podcast today. We're going to talk for a few minutes about the conversation before we do, um, we'll formally introduce Dr. Stacey Sims. She is a leading nutritionist and exercise physiologist who has worked with hundreds of professional athletes and age groupers. She's a go-to resource on hydration, nutrition, and sex differences. And in 2017, she was named as one of the top four individuals in changing the landscape in triathlon, nutrition, and beyond. Um, since then, Stacey, of course, wrote Roar, and then she most recently wrote the bestseller book, Next Level, which came out in June. And um, the book is available on anywhere you can purchase books, but she does encourage people to purchase it through small local booksellers if possible. I actually downloaded the book myself on Audible. It's been great. And the Audible version included includes the PDF of all the exercises and the diagram. So if you're someone that likes to listen to things, um, obviously, if you're listening to our podcast, you, you may like things that are Audible. So um, that is also a way to um, read her book. And the book is excellent. Uh, really, though, this conversation goes well beyond the book because we dive into some questions we had after reading the book. And that is, some of the recommendations in the book are very much counter to what we've talked about over and over on this podcast. And as anyone who listens to our podcast knows, we always consult with evidence-based registered dietitians when talking about nutrition and when talking about elements of strength training or anything, we, we do our best to bring on science-based experts on this podcast. And of course, as coaches, you know, we very much believe in, in, how we coach is not just based on the information that we've obtained through our coaching courses, but also through our coaching experience. And because of that, we are big believers in science and science changes. And so we listened to what Stacy shared, Dr. Sims, she allowed us to call her Stacy. We listened to what she shared with us with a keen ear, understanding that a lot of the information that you're about to hear is very much opposite of what you've heard us say on the podcast a lot. And that doesn't mean that we were wrong. It means the science is changing as it pertains to women who are perimenopausal, 
all the way to postmenopausal. So while this episode is specific for women who are in that phase of life, we encourage all women to listen, because guess what? If you're not there now, you will be there. And it's important to know what's coming and what you can do now to prepare yourself that you can be a durable athlete for many, many years to come. So Lisa, why don't you start and just share some of the things that we talked about, Stacey, that really surprised you? Uh, so one of the things, you know, we talk uh, with her a lot about nutrition and um, nutrition generally, but also uh, nutrition during a race and something that we are really, um, and, and I will say even at my race um, um, this weekend that, you know, I've been really focusing on is, is my, uh, you know, fueling during a race and really being um, diligent, diligent about every 30 minutes getting in a gel. And we've talked about this before. It worked really well for me at Boston. It's worked really well for me at other races. I really like Morton has been my kind of new go-to fuel. And, um, even at the half marathon, which in, in, in the past half marathons, usually all fuel ones, but I was very diligent about, um, fueling and, um, actually took two gels two Morton's during the half marathon, which I've never done before. And I felt great. I felt really strong through the end. So, um, but, you know, in talking to Dr. Sims, uh, really, um, she, you know, explains the reasons that, um, women, especially women who are in perimenopause or postmenopausal, um, don't, don't need that fuel. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just, you know, I, as we were talking to her, we were kind of both like wide-eyed of like, are you really saying what we think, what you think you're saying? And, um, she'll, she'll explain it more, uh, you know, on the podcast when we, when we talk to her, but, um, so that's something that's really hard for me to wrap my head around is, you know, not fueling in the way that I have been fueling. Um, similarly, um, electrolytes, you know, we're very big proponents of, especially in the heat. And then we've talked about it all through the summer. And I've been really also something I've been really diligent about. I go through the salt stick fast chew bottles pretty darn quickly. And same thing, the race use some, um, but that, uh, that we don't need, um, definitely don't need salt tabs and we don't need, um, uh, the, the electrolytes that we always kind of have been, uh, pretty adamant about, about our runners, men and women, including in their kind of their race routine. So what about you? What, what, you know, what kind of surprised you? Well, you know, I read the book and after reading the book and and this advice is in the book, I really thought in interpreting it, that when she shared that, uh, quick sugars are not great at all for women who are in this phase of life. I was like, yeah, except for when you're actually in the event, when you're actually racing, that's the exception. And that's what I really thought. And we asked her to clarify that. And she basically said, give your gels to your competitors. They're not good for women who are in the menopausal continuum. So thinking about our role as coaches and as runners, um, we have a lot of runners that are in this demographic and we will be making some changes and suggesting some changes. At the same time, we recognize the old saying, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. So if, if this is something that you feel has allowed you to race competitively and you really like what you're doing in terms of your nutrition, we're not going to tell you to change everything. But if you're someone that's really struggling we are happy to work with you because we, we believe in what she's sharing. We believe in her research. And the reason we believe in her research and she shares this even more is because the studies that registered dietitians rely on, and this is not their fault, are male studies. And Stacy has done a lot of work along with others to make sure that studies start to include women, because of course, women are not small men, but not enough do. But so far, because of this progress, they're seeing a lot more evidence that sugars 
and um, sources of sugar and white <laughs> carbohydrates are not effective for women in this phase of life. So we are going to be looking more closely at that and making suggestions. The other thing that surprised me, Lisa, was um, the long run and the role of long runs in marathon training. She's not saying don't train for marathon. She's not against endurance sports, but she feels there needs to be much more of an emphasis on strength training and not just body weight strength training, but lifting heavy shit, LHS and sprint interval training, which is SIT. And both of those things, along with the long run every week can cause a lot of inflammation and too much cortisol. So how do we balance that? You probably don't need to do a long run every week, but again, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. And if your long run every week is what's getting you through your week. And of course we just had Scott Douglas on our podcast a few weeks ago that shared all of the mental health benefits of running. We're not here to tell our runners who tre treasure their long runs. We don't think you should be doing as many long runs. That's not our place either, but it's all about balance. It's all about nuance. And that's what coaching is about. It's about taking all of this information, putting it together and looking at each individual athlete and seeing what works best for her. Um, so guys, if you are listening and saying, this isn't for me, we would, we would suggest that you listen as well, because even though the information that Stacy is providing is applicable to women in this phase of life, um, it's actually a lot of it is applicable to endurance sport in general. And of course, if you run with other women, uh, it is relevant. It's important to know this information. Or if you have wives, girlfriends, whatever, partners that you feel could benefit from this information, please share it with them because this is important stuff. And we want, we want everyone to be armed with the information they need to be able to run and do whatever sport they love for as long as they want to. And this is a new time because until very recently, this age group wasn't comprised of so many women in endurance sports. And suddenly when you go to a race, there are so many women in their forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies. And so it is important that we have this information so that we can make sure that everyone can participate to the level that they want to. And uh, Stacey's book, Next Level is just that. It's saying just because you're getting older doesn't mean that you can't continue to lift heavy, that you shouldn't want to continue to run fast and you shouldn't be relegated to something you don't really want to do because you feel like you can't compete at the level you were at before. Sure, we all get slower, but we don't have to get that much slower if we're doing the things that she recommends. And another thing, and this is at the very end of the podcast, she talks a little bit about COVID and some new research about COVID that is fascinating. So we encourage everyone to listen to the end uh, because we really, that was a nugget we didn't expect. And we thought that her information was golden and we really appreciated it. Absolutely. And especially because, um, you know, we're still, still figuring out uh, COVID, you know, we're really still developments that are you know happening. We're in the middle of, of figuring out, you know, what's going on with COVID and what's going on with our runners. And we've said this before, you know, it's just, it's hard right now to give guidance to runners other than be patient. And, um, you know, uh, but as we're talking to the physicians that we've been talking to over the past several podcasts, we're starting to hear about uh, research that's coming out and, and 
developments that are that are happening and um, things that we're figuring out. And if you look back at the beginning of COVID, what we thought we knew and uh, and what we know now, we know so much more now. So I know moving forward, we'll we'll know a lot more. But yes, which she you know she has some actual some real um, tangible advice for those who are kind of struggling post. COVID who are also in menopause and maybe asking themselves, well, is this just because I'm getting older and it's just because I'm going through menopause or is it because of COVID? So definitely worth a listen. Absolutely. So Lisa, welcome back. I'm so glad you had such an amazing trip and I hope you have a great week. You too. And here's Dr. Stacey Sims. Dr. Stacey Sims, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so excited to have you on our show today. Um, we just wanted to start and have you introduce yourself to maybe that one listener who doesn't know who you are already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, a, I guess the short course is female athlete performance physiologist, which are the big words to say, I look at all active women and go, hey, wait a second, we can do things a lot better if we pay attention to our own physiology. And we also acknowledge the fact that almost all the research on coaching and nutrition, it comes from male data. So we have to really look at women differently and figure out what works best for us. That's a long-winded version. And you are also an athlete yourself. Can you share a little bit about, um, in addition to the work you do, um, what, what you enjoy doing in terms of your athletic pursuits and what you used to do? Oh, well, right now I am just dabbling in a bit of everything, just trying to stay fit. So I do a lot of lifting, I do gravel riding, I do a little bit of running, although nursing and injury, so not as much as I'd like. Um, ocean swimming. So if it's an adventure and it seems fun, I'll do it. But come from the background of I did 20 marathons before I was 20. I did some ultra running, then I gravitated into um, triathlon and Ironman distance. And then after um, racing Ironman, got into professional bike racing. And then from there, did some Xterra. Um, and then found out I was pregnant the week before I did Worlds the second time. And from then on out, trying to balance stuff, kind of gave up on. Well, didn't give up, but decided that it was better to help behind the scenes and really pay attention to family and career and research instead of trying to go out and pursue the top level of stuff that I used to do because I kind of lost love of that whole competitiveness. And so clearly you have, you know, obviously the background of of being an, an athlete and an endurance athlete, but talk to us a little bit about what inspired you or what motivated you to start looking at those differences between men and women? Uh, because of the long history of like being in athletics and trying to better myself and my teammates. Um, when I started university way back in the beyond, which we won't count the years, um, I transferred out of poli sci and got into exercise phys and at the time was racing competitively for Purdue and was trying to really match what I was learning in a classroom with what we were feeling as um, a crew, like rowing, and it wasn't quite adding up. And so I started asking questions and I'd always volunteered to be the participant in the metabolism labs. And oftentimes, like my data was thrown out because it was, quote, an anomaly because it didn't match the men per se. So just small things and coming from a background of being the person always asked why, 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 and not getting the answers, um, just really started diving in and realized that everything in the textbooks, 
everything in the PDFs, all the stuff we were being taught was based on male data. And I was like, wait a second, men don't have menstrual cycles. Men don't have all of these stigmas about that time of the month. So obviously if we change that much, then something's, something's different and we shouldn't be treated as the same as men because we're not. So that kind of festered as an undergrad and then kind of really pushed forward my entire academic and athletic career. And what changes have you seen, i.e. what improvements since you started pushing your mantra, which we love, women are not small men? I'd say in about the past four or five years, we've seen this uptake, not only in the research world of really looking at the methodology and having more and more women who were entering the academic research world about the same time I was now having senior positions. So we are now um, editors of journals, we're heading up labs and we're really saying, hey, wait, we have to look at the methodology. We have to acknowledge the fact that women have menstrual cycles or they might be on oral contraceptive pill or they might be perimenopausal or they might be menopausal. And we have to push out really good methodology and really good research because there's this huge growth of women who are either participating or competing in sport or they're just trying to use exercise as a way to enhance their health. And all the recommendations that we see is based on male data, either young men or old men, but we don't age the same as men. We don't have a linear aging pathway like men do because we have things like perimenopause, menopause that really interrupt the way that our body responds to getting old. So in the past four or five years has been this global uptake of really identifying the fact that women need specific research and there is not a lot of robust research. Coupling that with professional athletes now speaking out and being very vocal about their menstrual cycle and how they feel at different times throughout their menstrual cycle or how they've lost it through red S or they thought it was okay to be amenorrheic and it's not. So it's just like I said, the past four or five years where it's this accumulation of the academic and research world finding their voice to say, we really need to study women across the age span as well as the ability to have that globalization of professional female athletes starting out going, yeah, we need stuff. And we need to understand the menstrual cycle. We need to understand how our nutrition is different, how our training should be different, because we're tired of just being said, oh, it's that time of the month. And your injury is because of that time of the month, when there are certain things that they can do to prevent it. Thank you. We, um, as two coaches who um, many of our clients um, range from, of course, 20s all the way into their 70s, but the majority of our clients that we coach are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, many of whom are women. And we can't thank you enough for um, pushing, pushing the envelope and moving the needle. What improvements, though, still need to be made? How are those studies going and what needs to be done to really make a difference? Uh, we could probably redo every study in nutrition and sports science in the 40 onward set and see completely different outcomes as compared to the 20 to 30 set and definitely different from men. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but we know from like small studies or anecdotal case studies, we're starting to put pieces together. So we're really starting to dig into what are specific nutrition interventions that are very beneficial for women who are premenopausal versus those who are peri and postmenopausal. Uh, same with coaching, because if we look at coaching protocols and testing, it's still 20 or 25 years behind the research, just in, in the male scope. So then when we start 
layering in the identification of women menstrual cycle hormone perturbations, coaching still hasn't caught up. So we're real, really pushing the individual, like these are the generalized ideas and how we know hormones can affect women. But we really have to bring it back down to the individual person because we can't write guidelines. We don't have enough research to really push out guidelines that are going to be specific like we have guidelines for periodization or like we have guidelines for carbohydrate intake. So you mentioned, you know, you touched on kind of, you know, the, the general differences through, you know, because of our menstrual cycle. Um, and then you touched on menopause and perimenopause and your, your newest book um, really delves into that. Um, tell us kind of why, why you wrote this book and what, what need, you know, you saw and, um, you know, why, why do we as coaches and athletes need this book? When we first, I say we, not the royal we, but me and Celine Yeager, who's my co-author, um, we first wrote Roar and pushed it out there. We had a lot of women come back to us and say, how come there's only one chapter in menopause? And we started looking and I was like, hey, wait a second. All of, I'm in that age group and my friends are in that age group. We're all in our late 30s, early 40s, Celine as well. And really starting to see the growth of this, quote, master's group of women who were super competitive age group winners or professional athletes who are moving out of the professional scope because they're getting older and there wasn't any information out there. And I was coming from um, my work at Stanford with Marcia Stefanik, who was the PI at the Women's Health Initiative and understanding what perimenopause and postmenopause was in the general population. And in that, I was also looking at all the stuff I'd done in human performance with regards to to fitness and temperature, and then applying it to perimenopause women. So in my head, I was like, why do people not know this? Like, this is very, like, there are so many things that we can do to help. Why do people not know this? And then Celine started going through um, perimenopause and going, what's going on? And so she's like, we have to expand this. So when we started um, approaching our publisher and saying, we have this big call for this book. And you look at the massive amount of women who are active and they don't fit the typical postmenopause, perimenopause research group that is sedentary, obese, and sick. We have research, we have some science, we need to get it out to, to a larger population. So that was the impetus of the book. So in writing the book, what what struck me when I first started reading it was you really laid out very nicely what menopause is because sometimes it's defined, oh, a lot of the time it's defined incorrectly. And yep. so can you explain um, how, what it means to be on that continuum from peri to post and what actual menopause is and why there's a difference in how we treat each phase? Yeah. So, I mean, the general cultural construct is that when women hit a certain age, they're menopausal and they don't have periods anymore or they're going through perimenopause. They're, oh, you're a menopause, menopause transition. But menopause itself is just one day on the calendar. So, I mean, I think some of us have said it's like the birthday for the rest of your life because it marks the one day where it's been 12, 12 months since your last period. The six to 10 years leading up to that one point in time is called perimenopause. And what happens in perimenopause is your hormones start to change ratios. So we start to see a little bit more estrogen dominance, a little bit less progesterone, because we're starting to become less effective at ovulation. We're having more and more ovarian failure. So if we don't ovulate, we don't really produce progesterone. So we'll have more and more anovulatory cycles. 
And how this manifests itself in women is we start to see uh, inability to really adapt to training. We might see drop off in power. We start seeing body composition changes that are not favorable. So we start seeing more belly fat, um, start losing lean mass, uh, really poor sleep and sleep disruption. And if we take most of these ideas behind it, a lot of physicians will be like, oh, it's just because you're in your 40s and you're super busy. But it's really the changing of these hormones, and these hormone ratios. Then we see about three years before that one point in time, menopause, we really start to see changes in the menstrual cycle and the bleed patterns itself. So this is a really good indication that, yeah, we're not ovulating and the body is starting to enter ovarian failure, which is we're not going to reproduce anymore. Then after that one point in time, menopause is a new biological point, which is postmenopause. So this is where we're not producing estrogen or progesterone from the ovaries. We still have some estrogen and progesterone production from other parts of the body, but not the same and not the same strength as when we were in premenopause. So we're looking at all these hormone changes. This is why I said women don't age in that linear fashion like men do. Because perimenopause is kind of arbitrary. It's like, when does it start? Well, it depends on what your body comp is, how you've treated your body, what your a mom or grandmother went through, um, and how long that lasts and how you respond to it is all environmental as well as genetic. So it's really hard to put a pinpoint on, on when you turn 45, boom, you hit perimenopause. It's not that easy. And we don't know exactly when menopause is going to hit either because some women will have like six months of no bleed and then boom, they have another bleed. So then they can't technically be menopausal until they've had that 12 month standpoint. So it's very confusing for people and very confusing for women. With postmenopause, I mean, obviously that's the longest phase because you're in a, a period of, no pun intended, of peri. Then you're in that one point in time for men, menopause. And then for the rest of the time, it's postmenopause. Does that have fluctuations as well, or is that more linear once you hit postmenopause? We know that early postmenopause, you'll still have some, a lot of women will still have some vasomotor symptoms, so hot flashes, night sweats. Uh, they'll start, still have a little bit of insulin um, insensitivity or insulin resistance, and that lasts four or five years. And then after that, your body's completely settled and flatline hormones, and that's the rest of your life. But we really say it's a new biological state. As soon as you hit that one point in time, a little bit of fluctuation for the three to five years after, and then it's a set point. What are some of the, um, I wouldn't say symptoms, but the manifestations that women in their 40s who may be getting into this perimenopause phase, what are they seeing in their training? Like you talked about, you know, adaptations are different. And so what are they, what are they starting to feel? So, you know, our runners who are at that age and they're saying, well, is it the heat? Is it fatigue? Is it, you know, am I just tired because I've got a lot going on if it's running kids around here? What, what, what might they start to feel at that point in their training, especially endurance athletes? Yeah. A lot of women will think they're overtraining. And they'll be like, I, I must be training too hard or I'm not training hard enough and I'm eating too much because I put on a little bit of, of extra weight. And when we really dial it down and look at what's happening, most women end up in a low energy state because of what's happening, right? So they're not fueling for what they're doing. They're not eating enough to recover from it. They're definitely not eating enough in the day because it's this 1980s mentality that we also have in this age group of calories in, calories out. 
we start putting weight on, oh, you better cut back on your calories and up your training. And so we start seeing that that conversation going on with a lot of women in their heads. Oh, well, what do I need to do? But in actuality, if we look at the volume of the training they're doing, they're not able to really hit high intensity. So you go to a track workout or you're trying to do intervals and you just can't quite meet the mark. You're like, what's going on? I'm sure I recovered well. I slept well, but this is dead in fatigue and I just can't push that top end. They keep falling back into that moderate intensity zone. And they feel like they had a hard workout, but they didn't. And they might see that their heart rate variability is somewhat um, decreased and they're not looking at, at those recovery metrics properly. Because as we start getting into perimenopause, we start seeing ourselves in a downward slide with our heart rate variability. Because we're starting to have more of these hormone fluctuations. And so the body's like, hey, wait, what's going on? So you're in more of a sympathetic drive all the time. If you're in a sympathetic drive, you can't get into really good deep sleep because sleep is a parasympathetic response. Our heart, our resting heart rate and our heart rate variability also take a hit. Our respiration rate is elevated because we have this increased baseline of cortisol. We also have an increased um, baseline of systemic inflammation. So we'll also start to see more soft tissue injuries that take longer to heal. You might be, um, you know, might step down wrong off the curve and you're like, whoa, I just pulled a calf muscle. What was that about? So there's just these small little nuances that are starting to happen. And it's because we are in perimenopause. Thank you so much for sharing those symptoms because uh, most of us in this age group, we we did grow up in the 80s where it's all about dieting and calories. And there are people out there, women out there beating themselves up, thinking it's something that they're doing wrong. When in reality, it's just learning how to adapt and learning what we need to do to um, work with these symptoms. And I don't like to use the word fight because that's implying that there's something wrong with our bodies and that's right. not the case. Um, so to that end, thank you for writing Next Level. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's a great read and, um, we love how you laid it out where you have categories. So you talk, there's many chapters, but we're going to focus today on the things that we feel our runners and our listeners are, are really concerned about. And that is effective training, nutrition and hydration, and then, um, adaptogens. So, um, we'll start with nutrition because that is something that's very confusing and you are the expert and we've had a lot of registered dietitians, evidence-based registered dietitians on our show. And we know that they all think the world of you. So what we love is what you're about to share. We know they support. And so one caveat though, is when you're sharing this information is the information you'll be sharing, is it relevant to women who haven't yet hit menopause? In other words, are the guidelines that you provide in the book, are they that different if you haven't yet started the menopause uh, continuum? Well, I really tell women when they're in their late thirties to have an eye to what's coming up, to be prepared, right? So we start looking at, let's change up our training a little bit. Let's start dropping the volume. Let's start putting a focus on strength and power and explosiveness because women are endurance by just being born XX. So we don't have to work on the volume. We are already there from a physiological standpoint. So as we start to get into our late thirties, we might feel like we're like right on, we're like really firing. We've got good PR. We're, we're hitting on those PRs. We're hitting our, our speed metrics. We're getting better and better. But 
it's like maybe you hit 42, boom, you're down the backward slide. So if you have an eye to what's going on and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to keep doing my tempo runs and I'm going to keep doing my track workouts, but instead of going out and doing my long, slow distance run, I'm going to do some heavy lifting and some economy of movement. So those are the things we need to start really thinking about as we get into our mid to late thirties, just so that when we start going through that actual transition, our bodies aren't like, whoa, what's going on? It's more like, okay, now I need to really step it up and really start really focusing on the power and the strength and dropping the volume of that. So anyone listening will benefit. And it's really important for, I think, for women of all ages to understand what is going to happen, either in the far future or the not so far future, because I don't want women to be afraid. And I don't want them not to be informed about how to change things because we have this whole cultural and social nuance around menopause being so bad and you age out and you get fat and slow and there's nothing you can do. It's absolutely not true. Okay. So I, I lied. I said before that we were going to talk about nutrition first, but since you mentioned it, let's talk about, let's talk about running first. So most of the people listening and most of the people we coach love love the half marathon, marathon distance and treasure and cherish the long, slow distance run, not just because it's enjoyable socially, but it's great for mental health. So oh, yeah. are you, you, are you saying that one should not be doing those runs or what exactly are you recommending as one hits the menopause continuum? Yeah. So I'm not all or nothing. I, I think some people have been like, no, I can never do my long, slow stuff because Stace says I have to do heavy lifting and short, short stuff. It's like, no, we have to look at what you used to do because we look at all the coaching protocols up to this point and it's all about the volume increasing 10% per week and doing a couple of speed sessions. But as we get into the transition and we're starting to have these fluctuations of our hormones, our bodies respond differently. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to find an external stress that will create an adaptation that our body will absorb the way hormones used to support it. What I mean by that is we lose um, explosive power, we lose speed, we lose muscle integrity as estrogen starts to fluctuate because the estrogen receptors in myosin are becoming less and less effective at pulling estrogen in and allowing estrogen to do what it does. So when we're looking at how are we having an eye to change in training, like full disclosure, I am a full-time endurance junkie, right? Like I ultra running, marathoning, you know, Ironman, long distance swims, all that stuff. So I completely understand the soul food and I love it when I'm out on a ride with two of my really good friends. It's time to catch up. You see so many things and you're bonding. And that's how I like met my best friends, my husband, all that kind of stuff. So fully understand it. But when we're looking at how are we going to benefit our health and performance, we have to think about doing quality in the week and not putting such an emphasis on doing two, three hour runs on the weekend. Like we can look at it as having two weeks on where we're having really focus on heavy lifting, some um, interval work, uh, running economy, and really working the drills and really building the polarization of the pure strength and the high intensity. And then having maybe one 90 minute run on the weekend. And then that third week where we're kind of deloading, this is where we have no intensity and maybe you're putting in one really long, slow distance, but it's super slow. 
we're talking the walk run stuff because it's time on your feet. It's about absorbing the scenery, being with your friends. So it's not a, a no, you can't do long, slow stuff. It's about very, being very strategic of where you put it in and what is that long, slow. Because so many people, men and women, get that long, slow wrong, where they stay in that moderate intensity zone and they're like, yeah, I can run two hours, but then I start to fall apart. How am I going to do a marathon? It's because they're not polarizing enough. They're going too hard in their long runs. And so when we start talking about the changing up of doing more intensity, more power-based stuff, more heavy lifting, you have to make sure that long, slow run is in a rating of perceived exertion on a scale of one to 10, you're not going over four. So if you hit an incline and you need to power walk to keep your rating of perceived exertion low, you do it. Because then you are getting that benefit of everything that we love about endurance, but we're not actually creating increased cortisol. We're not creating an increased sympathetic drive and we're not fighting our physiology. I think that also kind of relates to another question we had is that how do you balance, um, you know, how does an endurance athlete or somebody training for a marathon or even a half marathon balance that high intensity and really power work, that strength work with their long runs and not have too much stress where, you know, you've got a long run and then you've got a hard strength workout and you've got another long run. So it sounds like that's sort of maybe how you'd recommend balancing is, is periodizing or, you know, it's kind of cyclical where you've got a down week, you can add a little more, very easy volume um, so that you're not getting injured because you're trying to do both of them. Exactly. And the high intensity is a phase in, right? Because so many endurance athletes are like so used to doing long, slow stuff and maybe their high intensity work is just a couple of VO2 efforts, but it's not true fit or hit work. So it's phasing it in to prevent injury. And same with um, resistance trainings. Like I'm not going to tell people to go lift heavy if they've never been in a weight room before. I'm mean, like, let's look at mechanics, let's look at mobility, let's look at doing body weight work first, and then we can start adding load because the ability to get injured is relatively high if all of a sudden you jump into something that your body's not used to. When we're at this point where we have more systemic inflammation and we have less stress resilience in our soft tissues. So it's super important with the long game and I, instead of the short term, I got to do this now because my race is in three months. It's the long game. We got to play the long game. So I think our two, our, our, um, kind of our traditional knowledge and what, how we think a lot is as we get older, we need more recovery and we feel it in our bodies. And we, you know, listen to that and we see it in our older run, you know, our runners who are 50s, 60s that, you know, they're telling us, I feel like I need, do we need more recovery as we get older? Is it taking our bodies longer to recover? Yes. Um, although we are more endurance, we also have you know, a little bit slower in the neuromuscular aspect of the muscle contraction. We have slower metabolic, um, I guess, recovery with regards to coming back down to baseline. And after menopause, we have a longer period of inflammation. So we're looking at a greater amount of inflammation. So if you're doing a really hard session, we know that at the end of that hard session, instead of having inflammation that's about five hours long, it can be up to 24 hours. So we really have to look at, okay, inflammation is good, but because it's expanded as we get older, we do need to look at recovery as a, a complement to the heavy stuff that we're doing. And it's essential. Recovery days are just as important as our tempo and our strength days. 
And what would you consider a recovery day to be? Because a lot of athletes, as you know, can't rest. Like that's really hard for them to just rest. So what do you consider to be a rest day and or recovery day? Um, so like a lot of people will go to the pool and they'll float around in the pool and they're doing, um, maybe 30 minutes of a session. So it's not, um, a lot of eccentric loading and you're having the ability of the water to kind of help with venous return. Uh, but then the flip side of that is some people will swim too hard and get their heart rate up too much. So then we start looking at, okay, what are some of the other things? Because we all have that set pattern of, I get up, I do this, I get up, I do that. And so in a recovery week, it's off-putting because it's not our same routine. So I tell people, keep your same routine in the fact that if you get up every Monday and you're like, I'm going to the gym to do some strength work, we go to the gym, but we're not putting load. We're working on our technique. We're working on our mobility. We are staying within the routine of what we usually do, but we're completely dropping the volume and the load in it. So say you do gym on Monday and then Tuesday, you meet everybody at the track or you track workout. You can still go, but you're not doing the track workout. You're doing running drills on the track. You're doing the mobilization. You're doing the high knees, the kicks, the, you're really looking at economy of movement because all of these little things that you're doing in recovery is going to feed forward and help you be stronger in the back half of your marathon. It's going to help you with that running economy in the back half of your half marathon, your full, your ultra run. So it's not lie down and do nothing because that just doesn't work in our world. We know this, right? So it's just really taking ownership of your training and your usual patterns and just modifying it and saying, drop in intensity, drop in volume. I'm still having the social aspect, but I'm going to take care of my body because it's a rest day. Love it. And just one more running specific question before we go into um, lifting and uh, high intensity. And that is putting it into practice. There are a lot of, as you mentioned, competitive masters athletes out there that are listening to this and saying, that's, that's great. And all, Stacy, but I am a competitive marathoner and I am not going to give up that schedule that's gotten me to the start line of Boston every year. And I need my long run to be X distance. And I need to do one long run every week. And I need to do my track workout. What do you say to that woman who really believes in that system and is, is scared or reluctant to try something, even if it means an improvement in how they feel overall and a reduction in their inflammation? Yeah. So when we look, like I said, when we're playing the long game, right. And we're looking at coaching and coaching um, protocols that have not caught up with the science. Um, I've had a lot of women who are like that. They're competitive ultra runners, marathoners, um, adventure racers, and it's it's kind of a leap of faith. So this is where we're phasing in a few things. We're phasing in the strength training. We're looking at, okay, we go to a track workout and let's see what your times are. Now, let's modify what we're doing in the days leading up to it so we have more lifting, less volume, and then let's go look at what's happening on the track. So we use different performance metrics along the way because women who are super competitive and buying into what they've done all the time, they need to have objective data show them that what they can change to do will directly improve their performance. So it is looking at and understanding who your athlete is, what motivates them, and understanding that, okay, if someone is really super motivated and really hard pressed to do the long run with the men every weekend to prove a point and to stay with them, 
okay, well, if you really want to do that, then that's your long run, but we're not counting it as a low intensity, long, slow day. We're counting that as your tempo day. And so this is your tempo workout. And we are going to phase our way into that tempo workout by really reducing the volume and intensity a couple of days before. We're working on mobility. We're working on running economy of movement. So then when you go run with the men, it's stressful, yes, but it is not as stressful to keep you in that sympathetic drive as if you had done your track workout on Tuesday, your hill reps on Thursday, uh, easy slow run on Friday, and then your quote long slow run on Saturday with the boys. So it's looking and modifying what's happening in the week before those performance metrics to feed back that objective data to these women. Thank you. That really helps. So there are two elements to um, a, what a week looks like um, in your book. And one element consists of something called LHS. And the other element is something that consists of SIT. And both are emphasized heavily as helping women be able to hold on to what um, once was estrogen and, and sort of and I hope I'm explaining this right, have receptors that will allow the body to believe there's still estrogen there. Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. So can you explain to our listeners what those two elements are and why they're important? Yeah. So I'll use my, my husband's PC words of LHS, which is lift heavy stuff carefully and sit is sprint interval training. So if we look at lift heavy, um, we're talking about power-based training if you're looking at the bodybuilding world where we're going zero to six reps. And what I mean by zero is that you're actually training to fatigue and we need to look at lifting heavy loads. So we often say to three to five, so it's three to five exercises, three to five reps with three to five minutes recovery. So we're looking at the men who are in the gym sitting down between every bench press set and they're sitting there, you know, they might be closing down. But what they're doing is they're allowing their central nervous system to recover. So when we look at it and why it's so important for women, like I said earlier, when we are starting to have fluctuation of estrogen progesterone, specifically estrogen, because estrogen is women's testosterone, it's our anabolic hormone, we have to look again at an external stress that is going to create the adaptations for us that we want. So when we start to look at what is heavy lifting, it's neuromuscular, it's not cardiovascular. What we want to do is we want to stimulate the nerve with a heavy load to go down and recruit as many muscle fibers as possible to really have a really strong contraction to lift the load. If we're doing that, then we are stimulating myosin. So we have two proteins in a muscle fiber called one is myosin and one is actin. And they work kind of like a ladder where they feed together and pull together. And this is how you have a muscle contraction. We have a lot of estrogen receptors in myosin. When we start losing estrogen, we start losing the integrity of myosin. If we have that really strong neural stimulus coming down to create that strong muscle contraction, then we don't really worry so much about estrogen stimulating myosin because we have the nerve that's doing it and recruiting these fibers. So we need to lift heavy in order to maintain power, to maintain strength, but also get a signal for muscle protein synthesis because we lose lean mass really quickly. So we need to have a stimulus that is strong enough to create a stress where the body's like, oh my gosh, okay, we got to maintain this muscle mass. We got to maintain this contraction. We've got to maintain the myosin and we have to build more. So we aren't so worried about estrogen so much when we're doing power-based training. 
when we are looking at sprint interval training, we need to be able to polarize and do that top, top end stuff. And it's not about metabolic control and being able to hit our anaerobic capacity. We wanna do that sprint interval training because we wanna have an epigenetic change within the muscle that allows us to pull more glucose in and use it as well as create uh, an environment where we have more explosiveness, more power, because that's what we lose. So if we're doing that sprint interval training, it allows us to have these epigenetic changes, which means that we have better blood glucose control, more metabolic control. And then when we're out running and we hit a, an overpass or something in our long run, we're not immediately shooting our heart rate up and getting into that modern intensity. So it feeds forward to performance, but when we're looking from a health angle, that sprint interval training is super important for overall general health and blood glucose control, but as well as keeping an eye to building more power and speed, which is what we lose as we start to lose our estrogen progesterone. Thank you. And so with respect to sprint interval training, can you give an example of a workout that in, consists of sprint interval training for a runner? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's very, very short, hence the sprint. And we talk about it as 20 to 30 second bursts with a good minute and a half or more recovery, because we want to be able to go as hard as we can for that 20 to 30 seconds, fully recover from a neuromuscular standpoint. It's that central nervous system thing again. So one of the things that... Um, I tell people, okay, here's a, a really good example. We have uh, every two minutes for 12 minutes, so six minutes of work. In one minute you're working and you have one minute off. So in that one minute, we might be doing something like 10 moderate intensity deadlifts to really get the posterior chain firing. And then boom, we're off running for 30 seconds. And we're trying to see how far we can get in that 30 seconds. And you stop and you fully recover for the next minute. And then the next two minute thing starts, 10 deadlifts, run as far as you can. And you do six reps of that, and that's it. And people are like, but that doesn't seem long enough. What's going on? It's like, well, you'll start to see the fatigue build because the goal is to be able to run as far or a little bit further after those deadlifts for every one of those minutes. And then you have a full minute off in between. And if you get to the point where you're fully gassed, then you stop. Another aspect, if you're not doing deadlifts before is okay, you have a um, minute on and a minute off and you're running from here to the stop sign and you're seeing how long it takes you, no more than 30 seconds. And each time you gotta try to beat that time. So it's kind of like fartlek training, but it's a very short, intense period of time. And again, it might be six to eight reps in that day. So the whole workout is super, super short. And for endurance athletes, it's really hard to get your head around. I'm going out for 15 or 20 minutes. So this is why I like to like do gym work, like heavy lifting or mobilization first, and then follow it up with a sprint interval for my endurance athletes so that they are like, oh, okay, at least it was an hour, right? So we have to play into the mindset of endurance athletes. Are these the type of workout? Do you do these types of workouts? I know you mentioned so you were I, nursing, yeah, nursing an injury, you know, a running injury, but is, is that yeah. what you do? Yeah, I was talking to my husband last night. I'm like, even my hobby has kind of become work because every time I'm doing something, I'm like, is this appropriate? Should I be talking about this? So, um, yeah. So what did we do today? Uh, I went and did a swim this morning because I just live across from the, the squad. 
and we were doing, um, it's a 33 meter pool. So we're doing 33 meter sprints, which takes about 30 seconds. So they're doing like 33 meter break for 10 seconds to go, but I do 33 meters, wait until they came back and then I go. Um, and then in the gym, we were doing one, one minute 30, where we're doing uh, five heavy power cleans and then 30 seconds of pull-ups and then 30 seconds off. So it was the strength and then the strength and then recovery. And we only did six sets of that. So I kind of doubled up on the intensity today, but I was like, it's great, it's rainy. So yeah. Makes sense. I like your suggestion um, for those who are reluctant to lift and or those who are reluctant to try the sit workouts, put it together and you've got a whole workout that's an hour long and will satisfy any endurance junkie. So that, that's yep. a great idea to put them together. And it's very time effective. Yes. And, and efficient and gives, gives um, the athlete more recovery days because you're not exactly. splitting that in the LH, the um, LHS. So yeah. You mentioned earlier about um, building muscle, and obviously, in order to do that, you need protein. So, can you yes. talk a little bit about? I mean, there's chapters on this, obviously, but can you talk a little bit about nutrition specifically for um, peri all the way to postmenopausal women? What is essential, and what needs to change if you haven't started doing this already with respect to protein? Yeah, um, so as we are getting into the peri and postmenopausal state, our bodies are becoming more anabolically resistant, especially muscle protein synthesis. That means that it takes more stimulus to build muscle. And part of that stimulus is amino acids. We know that regardless of male or female, as you age, you need more protein. But as I said earlier, we don't age like men do in a linear fashion. So when we hit perimenopause, we have more sympathetic drive. We have more cortisol, more systemic inflammation. We also need to counter that with protein and circulating amino acids. So when we're looking at doing a, a session and everyone is like, oh, chocolate milk after a session, that's not nearly enough protein, too much carbohydrate. So we're looking at 30 to 40 grams of protein post-exercise. And the reason for that is as we are starting to lose estrogen, we're actually losing one of the pathways for muscle protein synthesis. So when we look at premenopausal women, there are three primary pathways. We have IGF-1, insulin growth factor one, that is stimulated by estrogen. So it's estrogen and IGF-1 that helps stimulate muscle protein. We also have mechanical movement, which is physical activity, and we have amino acids. So when we start to lose estrogen and we lose that one pathway of IGF-1, we really have two. We have the mechanical stimulus, physical activity, lifting, sprinting, and amino acids. So if you're low on protein, you're losing that pathway as well. So we have to back up our physical activity with protein. The other thing that happens is as we are getting older and we might not be fueling appropriately for what we're doing, the very first thing that gets broken down is lean mass. So if we're like, oh, I forgot to eat, I'm going to go for my run anyway, you are not really into burning fat per se, you are really tapping into burning your lean mass. Your body's under stress already, and then you're putting it in under a metabolic stress. And it's like, hey, wait a second, I need to consume this fat because I'm already under a lot of stress. I'm under nutritional stress. I'm under uh, a sympathetic stress. So I'm going to take tissue that is very metabolically active, and I'm going to use that as fuel, which is lean mass. So we have to really back up what we are doing with protein. 
The other thing to remember is as we are going through the menopause transition and hitting post-menopause, we're becoming more sensitive to carbohydrates, we're getting more insulin resistance, which is why I'm like, we got to do some sprint interval training to get that insulin, um, resist or insulin tolerance back. But also we need to look at eating more veg as our carbohydrate base instead of gels, instead of quick hits of, of gummy bears or something like that on our runs. Because if we're eating the simple carbohydrates, even during our runs, we're changing our gut microbiome. And it's really important to understand that with the menopause transition, perimenopause, we are affecting our gut microbiome in a negative manner. In the fact that there are different bacteria that produce cofactors to help produce estrogen and the estrogen metabolites come back down. So when we're losing our normal ratios of estrogen progesterone, we're also perturbing our gut. But if we eat a lot of colorful fruit and veg, then we're feeding that good gut bacteria to then feed forward to help us maintain and balance the estrogen that we do have, as well as keep that diversity so that we don't build the amount of bacteria that then signals our body to hold on to body fat. So it's like we need more protein to support our body and amino acids. We need more colorful fruit and veg as our carbohydrate to support our gut microbiome because those are the two really, really important things that we need an eye to as we hit perimenopause into postmenopause. So all of this really makes sense except for one thing. And so we need to ask this, and that is when I'm running a marathon and when I'm training for a marathon, I, I want to reach for my Morton gel. It's convenient. It's a quick hit of sugar and it's going to allow me the energy I need to process that sugar fast enough to get me to the next, you know, through the next um, hour or so. And I take one every 35 minutes. This is what's worked for me forever. This is what all of the registered dietitians we've had on our show recommend. Are you saying that we shouldn't be doing that? Or are you saying in, except for in racing, one should avoid sugars? Even like throw the gels away or give them to your competitors, okay? So when we look at um, the data and the research that's been done on race fueling and gels, because they've done gels versus bananas versus other things, male data. We look at women. First, we look at absorption. So we are have slower gut transit time. So if you're taking in a gel, it sits in the stomach and the small intestines a lot longer than men. And when it sits in there, it signals the body to pull water from other spaces into the small intestines to be able to dilute the, that carbohydrate in order for it to be absorbed. So we start getting effective dehydration and we get gut slush. So this is why at the end of a marathon or a long run, you're like, oh, I feel gassy. And you're like, sorry, honey, I don't want to sleep with you because, you know, it's because we had so much brush border effect of these sugars just hanging out in the small intestine. The other thing is when we get into peri and postmenopause, we are very, very adept at not getting hypoglycemic. We start burning more fat and we are very stable, especially in long runs. Uh, we're doing some really, really cool, interesting research right now with ultra runners. And we're seeing the stable pattern of coming in fasted to do a four hour run. I'm not telling people to come in fasted, but just to get you a really good metabolic profile. First, women will use blood sugar and then tap into um, fatty acid before they get into protein, if we are running. 
So when we are looking at running, we don't need that much carbohydrate. We don't need carbohydrate every 35 minutes. We definitely don't need gels. What we do need is we need to make sure they're eating a lot of carbohydrate before that race. And then in the race, focusing on hydration. And then we're looking at using dates or eggs. Um, you can use gummy bears. You can use cliff blocks that are small hits of carbohydrate. And then if you're like, I really don't want to eat, then you can take a glucose tablet and you can suck on a glucose tablet because that gets absorbed in your mouth. It doesn't even interfere with digestion. So we're looking at how much carbohydrate women need, 30 grams at the most per hour. And if you're looking at how much is in one of the gels, it's almost twice that because they're all banking on the whole 60 to 90 grams an hour, which is too much for women to use and process, especially as we get into peri and postmenopause. And when we're talking about the recommendations from dietitians, they are different from a nutrition scientist, which is where I am, and the fact that they are looking at guidelines and the research that's being pushed from sports science and male research, right? Whereas I'm in the thick of it and going, okay, what is the female research? What is new? What can we do? And we're really trying to push this idea and really push the science that metabolically women are different. And we know that women, regardless of age, cannot tolerate that 90 grams of carbohydrate. And as we get older, we definitely need to bring back the amount of carbohydrate that we're eating every hour because our bodies are really effective at not getting hypoglycemic. We just need a little bit of carbohydrate to be able to maintain pace. And that comes from eating, you know, even Mike and Ike's or um, the Cliff Blocks because there's a small, small amount of carbohydrate and glucose tablets. Put your gels away. Wow, that is that kind of rocks our world. <laughs> you know, that's it totally we've only does. every thirty minutes. Have your gel. Um, um, I want to touch just a little bit on you talked about making sure getting your carbs beforehand and kind of loading your glycogen stores. I guess that's you know where that where that comes from. What type of carbs? Is there a particular type of carbs or simple carbs better in that pre you know that pre phase? What are what is the guidance that you give athletes on that that pre race phase of of carb loading? Yeah, well, women can't effectively carb load because again, our our metabolism is different, so we can't actually store glycogen like men do. So when we're looking at the metabolic aspect of how men versus women fuel for races, men tap into muscle and liver glycogen, and then they start getting into beta oxidation or fat burning. Women, we don't really touch muscle glycogen. We'll go liver glycogen to help support some of the glucose, blood glucose we need, and then we get into beta oxidation. So this is why we want to make sure that we have full liver stores and we have available carbohydrate to keep our blood sugar up. Um, so if we're talking about carb loading, it's not the you know taper down and get eight to 12 grams of carbohydrate because it just does not work for women. What we need to do is we need to look at getting 60 to 70% of our calories from carbohydrates and upping our calories in the, about the three days beforehand. And that carbohydrate is from fruit, veg, whole grains, not simple stuff. So you're manipulating your plate per se at each meal really boost the amount of carbohydrate, but have the eye to also, if you're boosting it with a lot of fruit and veg, you might end up too full from the fiber before you get adequate carbohydrate. So this is where you're like, okay, I have a little bit of salad, but I'm going to load up on the quinoa. I'm going to put in some bean pasta. So it's the eye to, okay, carbohydrate, milk has carbohydrate, almond milk has carbohydrate, 
oat milk has carbohydrates. So I'm going to put some more in my coffee. I'm going to make a smoothie with sweetened almond milk instead of unsweetened almond milk. Small ways of putting in more carbohydrate to boost your total intake, because then that makes sure that our liver is completely topped up and we have more circulating carbohydrate available for that blood glucose so that we can work with our own metabolism, our own physiology to keep pace and keep going. That's super helpful. We, we've always given that guidance to shift the ratios of your plate. Um, we have though, based on information from all of the registered dietitians we've worked with, um, there's a strong belief in simple carbs leading up to um, the days leading up to a race, but you're saying it's better to use complex carbs, brown rice versus white rice, quinoa, sweet potatoes. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay, because yeah, right. the simple carbs, when we look at what's happening with the simple carbs, those are the ones that are rapidly absorbed into muscle glycogen, but we're not tapping that out. We need to have more complex carbs because of pulling in the um, carbohydrate and glycogen in the liver stores. So it's a little bit of a slower process. We don't need that fast hit. So if we have that fast hit, we have a really huge boost in insulin, but then it doesn't feed forward going into the muscle. It's like, okay, now what do I do with this? So it is a nuance in how our physiology and how our bodies respond to carbohydrate. Super helpful. And you mentioned about absorption and hydration. You are an expert in hydration and you um, actually wrote your, your uh, thesis, your PhD, you've got your PhD and um, studied hydration extensively. So you are the hydration guru. And as a result, can you share um, how we as women um, in this menopausal, postmenopausal yeah. continuum need to approach our hydration? Yeah, so um, when we're talking about the two schools of thought, we have the drink the thirst and we have drink X amount every 15 minutes. And that doesn't apply to women, especially peri and postmenopause, because our thirst sensation changes. But not only that, if we take a woman and a man, regardless of age, and we make them both do the same marathon and they're both finishing at a similar um, time frame and a similar load. Men or the man will finish with high blood sodium levels and severe dehydration if they're just drinking water. Women will finish with normal blood sodium or low blood sodium levels because the way that our bodies are absorbing fluid and using it is different because men sweat more. They have more body water available for sweating, but for women, we don't. So we will start sweating later and we really use a lot of vasodilation. So our blood vessels expand to release heat into the atmosphere. And we rely more on that before we start sweating. Of course, the thinner you are, the sooner you start sweating. But again, there's these differences, sex differences in the way we thermoregulate. Same with thirst. So men will feel thirsty a lot sooner than women. And as soon as we start looking at what are the hydration metrics for women, we know that in the high hormone phase and perimenopause and postmenopause, our thirst is not reliable for making sure that we get enough fluid in. So we have to look at sip, sip, sip along the way. And we have to look at using a functional hydration drink. So we're not looking at liquid calories. We're looking at something that has between four and eight grams of carbohydrate per 16 fluid ounces and between 160 and 250 milligrams of sodium per 16 ounces. So we know that Combined sugars, so sucrose and glucose, 
and sodium is what really helps with fluid absorption, especially in women, because we have that slower gut transit time, we have slower emptying rates, and we have slower absorption rates than men. So if we're looking at functional hydration and we're sip, sip, sipping along the way, then that keeps us in a state where we don't get too low blood sodium and we stay hydrated so we don't suffer in the back half of our race. What about outside of racing? Do you recommend that women um, drink water or do you think that we should be drinking some type of functional hydration that would be appropriate for being sedentary at a desk during work, for example? Yeah, so sitting at a desk, just a little bit of sodium in your water is going to help you absorb it. So I'll see so many, especially women, they have a, a drink bottle at their desk and they're sipping all day and they're peeing all day. Like if you were to take just one sixteenth of a teaspoon of normal table salt and throw into that 22 to 25 ounce bottle of water that you're drinking, you will absorb that fluid and you won't be getting up to pee all the time because there's no plain water in the body. All the water in our body is a solution of glucose and sodium for the most part. So if we're drinking plain water and dumping that into the body, the body has to take sodium and glucose to really absorb it and use it. But it gets to a point where the body's like, no, I'm just going to pee it out. So if you are like, I'm drinking all this water and peeing clear, but I'm still thirsty because you're not actually absorbing it. You're just peeing it out. So just a little bit of sodium in your water bottle on your desk is going to help. And then just plain water with your meal is definitely going to help. So our, um, you know, the electrolyte supplements that a lot of athletes use, noon, uh, salt stick, you know, the things we're using, especially in the weather's hot and we're saying, you know, is that, are those, are those helpful for women? Are they unnecessary? Are they, um, you know, do we, are we just going to pee them out because we're not, you know, we don't need them? Yeah. When you are, uh, Running in the heat, the only two things you have to be concerned about is fluid that has some sodium and some glucose in it. You don't need magnesium. You don't need potassium until after you're done. And when you're done, you need potassium to help rehydrate all the other spaces in your body. And definitely not salt tablets. I see so many people like, oh, I'm going for this long run. It's super hot. I need salt tablets. It's like, no, we back up and go, okay, look. Why do you think you need salt tablets? I'm cramping. Cramping is not related to low sodium. It's not related to dehydration. We actually don't know what cramping is related to per se, but we definitely know that it's not related to dehydration. If you're taking a salt tablet in because you're like, I'm cramping, I'm dehydrated, it's because of the shit that you've been using up to that point of the liquid calories. You're not actually hydrating yourself. You're effectively dehydrating yourself with gels and with sports drinks. So we need to look at the functional hydration has a little bit of sodium in it because that's how you actually absorb the fluid. Your body has a capability of losing up to 50% of its sodium stores and be okay. Also remember as women, we don't lose as much sodium as men in our sweat. Like I was saying earlier that if we have a man and a woman that finish a race at the same time, the same fitness, men will finish with elevated blood sodium levels. Women finish with relatively normal if they haven't been taking sodium in. So you don't need salt stick. You don't need sodium to take in. It's one of those nuances that sport nutrition has pushed forward because of the reliance on liquid calories that causes the cramping and the GI distress. The caveat is, if you have a history of heat illness or hyponatremia, then yes, you need some 
sodium tablets with you. But the idea of don't drink so much because you'll become hyponatremic is because people will drink plain water. Don't drink plain water. A little bit of sodium and sugar in the fluid that you're drinking, and then some sodium in whatever you're eating, uh, you know, like Cliff Blocks or Mike and Ike's or any of the those kinds of things has sodium in it. It's all you need. You don't have to worry about electrolyte tablets. You don't have to worry about you know, your gel having um, extra caffeine and salt in it because you're not going to be using them, right? So it's all about let's work with our intestines and we can eliminate a lot of the GI distress, stay hydrated, and then really power through the back half of our race. And you just made a great case as to why um, every woman basically in this phase of life needs to be carrying their own handheld through a race because no water stop is going to have that uh, hydration uh, offering. No, but if you do get stuck, right, you can get plain water and suck on pretzels. Okay. Because then you're getting some salt in with that water. So you're swinging down some water, you're sucking on the pretzel get you through the, you know, the next five or so minutes. And then you're like, okay, I'm done with this pretzel. I don't want to chew it. It's too dry. Boom. It's gone. You just suck the salt off. Perfect. So you have been so generous with your time. We just wanted to close out with one question that um, we, we feel is timely. And maybe, maybe you have some words of wisdom on that. And that is we're finding with a lot of our clients, they're asking themselves, is it COVID or is it menopause? So many of our runners, unfortunately, have had COVID, many of which, most of which are mild cases, but it is impacting their ability to run in the same way they were running before COVID. And everyone's trying to get back and navigate that. And it, a lot of the symptoms seem to mirror menopausal symptoms. And we were mm -hmm. just wondering if you had any guidance or, or any advice or words of wisdom for those who fall in that category. Yeah, for sure. So when we're, what we're looking at with COVID, especially in peri and postmenopause, it invokes a massive inflammatory response. So if we're looking at how do we dampen that, taking in just an over-the-counter antihistamine, that's going to help dampen the histamine response that's causing a lot of the long COVID, especially in peri and postmenopausal women. There's a couple of really interesting studies that came out last month looking at this histamine response. The other thing to remember, not only in the perimenopause transition, but also COVID, we are in a sympathetic drive and we're using a lot of the fast energetics in our brain, in our heart, in our gut. So we need to support that through using creatine. So if we look at creatine, creatine monohydrate, just five grams a day. So five grams is a little scant teaspoon and you can put it in your coffee, put it in your smoothie, whatever it is. But getting extra creatine not only helps with that fast energetics, we also know that it helps with long COVID as well as TBI. So we see uh, this concurrent of what's happening with brain energetics. The brain wants a lot of the ability to move fast because it's very energy hungry. Women start to lose creatine and we also have lower stores than men. So if we boost it, it's very therapeutic and to the point where the WHO put it as essential nutrition for women of three to five grams per day. So if we're looking at an antihistamine and adding in some creatine, if it's long COVID or peri postmenopause symptoms, both of those two things help significantly because it's supporting all the fast energetics from brain, heart, and gut. Wow, that's fascinating. That's really helpful. And you know, kind of gives a, a lot of the women that we, we work with and are 
struggling, some really concrete, um, you know, concrete advice and something to said you to do. Um, so that that is really helpful. We have really, um, I, like, like I said before, you really um, shifted the paradigm of a lot of what we've thought as coaches and what, you know, like you said, has sort of just been the the traditional knowledge. And, and we know as coaches, you know, we've always said to each other that a lot of the typical um, rules that, you know, we follow as coaches, the 10% rule that, you know, doesn't always apply across the board because pe people are individual and, and have individual responses. But I think what you've talked about tonight really underscores the fact that as women and as women who are approaching menopause at menopause or post-menopause um, really have um, different considerations and don't always happen to fall into the rules that we've, as coaches, have always, um, have always abided by. So it's really helpful to, to hear that the science behind it, because that always, you know, we always want to understand why. So the science behind it and from somebody who gets it, you know, uh, somebody who's in our, in our age demographic and yeah. also, like you said, an endurance junkie like us. So, um, you know, you're, you're somebody who gets it. So really appreciate um, you taking the time to explain it, lay it out and, and put it in terms that we as coaches and, and our runners and our listeners can understand. All right. And, you know, if we didn't have these conversations and went out, then we'd all still be like in our silos going, what the hell's going on? So thanks for having me and helping spread the word. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And Stacey, if you could uh, toot your horn and let our listeners know where to buy your book and anything else that you want to promote on our podcast, we know you have a lot of projects going on and feel free to share here. Um, so for the book, I am very much one of those people who's like, I want to support small booksellers if you can. So if you go to your local bookstore and ask for it, they can find it for you. But you can also get it from like Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. That's the other way to get it. But I, I really want Kepler's and City Lights and all those people to really benefit from people buying books. Um, other projects and stuff we have going on, if you go to the drdrstacysims.com, um, you can see all of our courses and stuff when we just launched the micro learnings, which are hour or less of deep dive topics. So the first one I think that we put out was on protein and protein supplementation, because my goal for people who finish that hour is to be able to go into any store, pick it up, read the label and go, oh yeah, this is a really good one. And this is exactly what I'm looking for, or it's all marketing bullshit. So that's what these micro learnings are about. It's really giving you the background of science and then enabling you to take action on what you've learned. Um, so those are like the big things that are going on. And then you can follow me on social media, of course, Dr. Stacey Sims, Instagram and Facebook. Um, and that'll keep you apprised of all the other little things that are coming up that are uh, more of a, a quick hit. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's where we are. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. And we so appreciate your time. And uh, we hope to have you again on again sometime when you, um, we're sure as your research continues, there will be more developments. And we hope to have you on again to share those with our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Stacey. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.